the enemy that we are fighting every day in close hand-to-hand combat, specifically in our minds and thoughts, is too powerful for us. Listen, if you think you can fight this war on your own, you are sadly mistaken. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Would you feel defeated if you knew you could never win a war? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom brings you part 14 of his current series, Learning to Use God's Armor. The truth is, the Bible teaches that you will never defeat Satan on your own. He's just too great a force against your soul. But as Tom continues to emphasize today, Christ can make you able to stand by giving you His own strength. But how does that happen? Does Christ's victory and His strength become yours automatically, simply because you're a Christian? What does the Bible say? Let's find out as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. What does Christ say? He says, the enemy who did this is the devil. That's the enemy. But, and this is so important to understand, the devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not God. You know, I think when a lot of Christians think about the devil and God, they almost have a dualistic view that they're not exactly equal. I mean, God is, after all, just a little more powerful, but it's almost dualism in which God and Satan are at odds. Listen to me. God created all things. We read this morning Jesus Christ created all things. He has Satan under control. Satan has to show up in God's presence according to Job 1 and ask his permission to do anything. He is, as Luther called him, God's devil. It's as if God has Satan on a leash, like a dog. So don't for a moment think that it's this sort of dualistic battle for the universe. Yes, Satan is God's enemy, but he is a created being And if God, and when God chooses, His resistance will be over in a moment. But Satan exists to battle God. But he's not like God. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. In fact, in Job 1-7, you remember when he shows up there in the beginning of the book of Job, God says to him, From where do you come? You've been in one place, and now you're here in my presence. Where did you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Satan can only be in one place at one time. So how is it then that Satan carries out his tactics across the globe in the life of every Christian? He does it through literally an army of spirit beings that help imitate God's omnipresence. In other words, they become his hands and feet to be everywhere, even though he cannot be. In Scripture, Satan often does personally confront great men like Job and David and Paul and Peter. But most of us may never have to deal personally with the devil. We're just not that important. Instead, we have to deal with his subordinates, and that's what Paul is saying here. That's the group verse 12 describes. 
The Bible identifies these intelligent, powerful beings as demons. They were once angels, once holy angels, but they are now fallen and evil. And there are many of them. Hebrews 12 tells us that there are myriads of holy angels. And according to Revelation 12.4, when Satan rebelled, he led a rebellion of a third of the angels. In fact, in Revelation 12, they're called his angels, Satan's angels. And now these spiritual beings follow him and seek to advance his agenda in the world. So our fight, folks, is not against people. It's against these supernatural beings called Satan's angels or demons. They are merely holy angels who chose to follow Satan's rebellion and now answer to him and who try to advance his agenda in the world. So our, war- our warfare then is universal, it's personal, it's spiritual, and it's supernatural. It's also hierarchical. My wife laughed at that word. That's a good word. I use that word all the time. It's hierarchical. That is, there's a hierarchy. It's carefully organized and structured. Notice verse 12 again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Listen, Satan is not an original thinker. Satan is an imitator. In the holy angels, the Bible tells us that there is a hierarchy. There is an ordered structure, a chain of command. For example, we're told about Michael the archangel. There are angels over other angels. There are angels with more power and responsibility and authority. In the same way, Satan's army has a carefully ordered structure. And verse 12 gives us just a glimpse into the hierarchy of Satan's horde of fallen angels. Now, it is impossible and frankly unnecessary to uncover the identity and the job description of each of these categories. In fact, this isn't even a complete list. In other places, different names are used of this chain of command. So this isn't a comprehensive structure of the demonic chain of command. What it does reflect for us, however, is the reality that in Satan's kingdom, there are various ranks and duties. These titles represent different levels of authority among those who carry out Satan's wishes. Now, the first two of them, notice in verse 12, rulers and powers, those two words occur together some ten times in the New Testament, and always in that same order. Sometimes they're used of human authorities. Sometimes they're used of holy angels and their authority. And other times, as here, they're used of demonic authorities, Satan's demons. Now notice, first of all, there are rulers. This word always speaks of primacy, of first place in rank. These are the demonic rulers at the very top of Satan's food chain. These are his generals. These are his board of directors. These are those who carry out his wishes, his immediate reporting relationships, rulers. The second word is powers. 
The same word occurs back in chapter 1, verse 21, where it's translated authority. It describes somebody who has authority. Somebody who has authority to make decisions, who has freedom to act. These are demonic beings who are underneath the, those who have first place, the rulers, but they're in a position of authority with the right to act and the right to make decisions. The third order that's given here is world forces of this darkness. Literally, the, the Greek word is cosmocrats. Cosmocrats, cosmos or cosmos, world, crat, as in autocrat or democracy, that is the rule. So it is a world ruler, a cosmocrat. They are world rulers. That is the extent of their influence. I think F.F. F. Bruce might be right when he says that these may be the, the kinds of beings that in the book of Daniel, you remember that there is a, there's a report there of two evil princes, spiritual princes, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, who prohibited one of God's holy angels from his mission. It may be that that's what is meant here by world rulers. In other words, these are part of Satan's leadership who oversee regions or empires or countries. We can't be sure. But notice, they rule over a world system of darkness. The darkness of sin, the darkness of error, the darkness of evil of every kind. Now the last group that's listed in verse 12 is not really a separate category, sort of another, another category down the chain of command. Instead, it is a comprehensive expression of all of Satan's forces. That last expression. Notice, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see the word forces is in italics. The idea here is the spiritual beings of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's all-encompassing. Forces in the sense of armies is the idea. There are armies of spirit beings whose essential character is wickedness and who inhabit the atmosphere surrounding our planet and who influence the people on it. We are in war, Paul says, locked in hand-to-hand -hand combat with a vast demonic army with a carefully defined and disciplined chain of command. That's the nature of the war in which we are engaged. Now the last thing Paul does before he gets to the armor itself is sort of summarize our orders. He's, he's given us our orders in somewhat detail, and now he goes back in verse 13 and looks at all that he said again and sort of catches it all up together in a summary. Look at verse 13. Therefore... In light of Satan's objective to destroy us, in light of Satan's schemes, in light of this vast army of forces arrayed against us, in light of the fact that our struggle is not against people, but against powerful spiritual beings controlled by Satan and using his tactics, therefore, take up. Now, take up, this Greek word is often used of picking up weapons. That's what he's saying. Take up. It's equivalent to the command back in verse 11 to put on. And he says, take up the full armor of God. Now, I'm going to get into this a little more next week, but let me just mention here that the stress 
when the full armor of God is not on the word full, as if the really important thing is to make sure you get all the pieces. That's not the point. The stress is on the fact that it is the armor of God you need to take up. As opposed to thinking your own defenses are enough, as opposed to thinking that you can handle this on your own, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist. The word resist is a word that's in the same family, the same sense as stand firm. It means, in a military sense, to make a stand, to hold your ground, to withstand the enemy, to ward off their attack. He says, I want you to take the full armor of God, that is, take the armor of God as opposed to your own strength, that you may have the power to resist or the power to stand firm in the evil day. What's that? Well, Paul describes all of the times in which we live as days are evil, he says. So in in one sense, every day is an evil day because we live in a world that's fallen and controlled that lies in the lap of the wicked one, as the Apostle John says. But here he says, in the evil day, he probably is talking about those critical moments in all of our lives when we are especially under Satan's attack either by error, his attack on the Word of God, or by fear and persecution, or by temptation. He says, I want you to stand in the evil day. I want you to be able to stand firm, to hold your ground. And having done everything, that is, having made all the preparation that I'm about to describe to you, to stand firm, to hold your ground, to resist Satan's attacks, to turn back his schemes... Now, all of that takes us back to verse 10. Because we can stand firm only when we are made strong with Christ's own strength. In the outworking, verse 10 says, of his own inherent power. What is the big point Paul is trying to make in verses 10 through 13? I don't want you to miss this. Listen carefully. In verses 10 through 13, Paul is saying essentially one thing, and it's this. The enemy that we are fighting every day in close hand-to-hand combat, specifically in our minds and thoughts, is too powerful for us. That's his point. Unfortunately, that's exactly the opposite of what most Christians think. Sadly, most Christians think that the Christian life is all a manner of my willpower, my decisions, and my expending the right amount of human effort. If I'll just work harder at it, I'll be a better Christian. Listen, if you think you can fight this war on your own, you are sadly mistaken. John Calvin, writing on this section of Scripture says, our difficulties are far greater than if we had to fight against men, for our enemies are such as no human power can withstand. Did you get that? No human power. I'm not able to stand against this. You're not able to stand against this. That's Paul's point. He's trying to bring us to the point of realizing my own resources won't cut it. I will lose every time error attacks through Satan's strategy. Every time fear and persecution attacks, every time temptation attacks, I will lose. I'm up against an enemy I can't beat on my own. This past week, I got a flyer for uh, an event here in the Metroplex for Promise Keepers. 
I got to thinking about that movement for men, and of course it's well-intentioned, and I know some men have been helped by it. But as I was thinking about that, that whole idea of our being promise keepers, I was thinking about this passage. Listen, our problems are so much greater than our own resolve, our own willpower, our own promises can overcome. That's what Paul wants us to say, wants us to understand. We are by nature promise breakers. And then add to that that there is this amazing attack from a formidable, relentless enemy trying to get us to sin, trying to destroy our souls, and we are in an impossible situation. So how in the world can we stand? That's where Paul wants you to be after verses 10 to 13. Here's the good news. Satan's evil, invisible army is no match for Jesus Christ. That's the point. Look at Colossians chapter 1. We read it this morning. Did you notice this verse? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by Him, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or here are words, are rulers or authorities. Notice he doesn't say whether he's talking about human authorities, or whether he's talking about angelic authorities, or whether he's talking about demonic authorities. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. They're all included. There's no group left out. He created them all. Jesus Christ created Lucifer, the prime minister of heaven. He created him perfectly, but he created him. He spoke him into existence and he was created by him and for him. Ultimately, our Lord Jesus Christ will get the glory from Satan's defeat. Now, look over in chapter 2 of Colossians. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were pursuing your sin, alien to God, God made you alive together with him. There's regeneration. There's new life breathed into us. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, all our acts of rebellion. How could he do that? Verse 14 tells us how. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. What is that? Listen, every moment you lived, you had a conscience that was telling you God's law. Romans 2 says the substance of the law is written on every man's heart. You had a conscience that was telling you, thou shalt, thou shalt not. That was telling you, you must love God with all your heart, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And yet you and I constantly sinned against that. We owed God obedience, and instead we gave him none. We had a huge debt that we had built with God. Verse 14 says, in the cross, Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of those decrees against us. He canceled it out. He wrote paid in full across it. The debt that you and I had, had accumulated, he paid. And it was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I love that. In the ancient world, in the first century, when they crucified a person, when the Romans crucified someone, they nailed to his cross a list of the crimes against him. Jesus didn't have any crimes. There was no crime on the cross except this is the king of the Jews. 
What God nailed to his cross was a list of your crimes. But God did something else at the cross in Christ. Verse 15, when Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Same group. We're talking about Satan's demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities at the cross. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through either him or through the cross, through Christ or the cross. Here's the point. When a victorious Roman general marched back into Rome after having beaten his enemies, in his train were the defeated. That's what happened at the cross. What looked like the darkest moment of the life of Jesus Christ was in fact his most victorious. And at the cross, it's as if Satan and all of his powers and all of his demon hordes were in Christ's defeated train. They've been beaten. Christ has already proven the armor that we're supposed to put on. It works. At the cross, he defeated all of his enemies and ours. And if we live in the power of his victory, if we put on his armor, his strength, then we can stand. I love the way John Gerstner, American theologian who's now with the Lord, really the one who trained R.C. Sproul, Gerstner writes this, that Adam in all his pristine glory, made in the spotless image of God with holiness, righteousness, and knowledge, was able to be brought to ruin by satanic temptation, proved that we never of ourselves are able not to sin. Think about it. Adam had every conceivable advantage. He was perfect. He walked with Jesus Christ in the cool of the garden every day. There was no sin anywhere to be seen. There were no temptations except the one brought against them through Eve, through the serpent and Eve. And yet he fell. Listen, if a perfect man in a perfect place can't defeat Satan, what gives you the, the thought or me the thought that we can? That's the point Gerstner's making. Now listen to what he says. But no matter how weak our faith how meager our discipleship, how much we shame the name of Christ and have so often to repent and turn home again, no matter how we fail, because we are united to Christ with a love which will never let us go, Satan with all his craft and power cannot stand against us and we can conquer him. Even in our best condition, we cannot meet Satan. But in our weakened and debilitated state, sinning far more than we live victoriously, we are able to conquer him because Christ has given us the victory. That's the point. You will never defeat Satan on your own. It's too great a force against our souls. His temptation and his persecution and the fear he brings and the error he brings subtly into our lives, you can never do it. But in Christ and in His strength, you can. It's like Martin Luther's great hymn, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not His equal. Luther goes on to say, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. 
were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies is that word. Lord of armies is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Christ makes us able to stand by giving us his own strength. But listen carefully. His victory, his strength, does not automatically become yours simply because you're a Christian. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. How can we have Christ's own strength to stand against this onslaught? By putting on the armor of God. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part 14 of Learning to Use God's Armor. Tom will have part 15 for us next time. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.